Well, we welcome you today to another in our uh, series of podcasts on various government contracting topics. My name is John Carpenter, and I'm joined today by John Ford, uh, a senior consultant in our group. And uh, John, welcome. And, and today we wanted to talk for a few minutes about contracts for commercial items. Obviously, uh, many of those types of contracts issued by the government these days. And I know you've, you've reviewed uh, who knows how many hundreds or thousands of these in, in uh, your time with us. And, uh, and I thought we would talk a little bit about the kinds of clauses that, that, we, that a contractor should expect to find in this kind of contract. And, and uh, let's morph off into the kinds of clauses that you've seen that really do not belong in these kinds of contracts. Okay, well, thanks, John. Yeah, just as a little bit of background, uh, for the last 25 years, the government has had a preference for the acquisition of commercial items. Uh, background on that, back in the 1990s, uh, there, a study was done on uh, premiums that the government was paying for u- using government unique procurement procedures, particular specifications. And the results of that study showed that uh, DOD was uh, paying a 19% premium on uh, contracts using government unique requirements instead of using uh, commercially available items and contracting techniques. This probably takes us back to the days of uh, publicity around the the $400 hammer or the uh, $500 toilet seats and those kinds of things. Right, a little bit uh, little bit around that same time, maybe a little bit later. But uh, the preference, <coughs> excuse me, for commercial items was contained in FASA. And on a uh, uh, personal note, when FASA was passed, instead of using the regular rulemaking process of the FAR Council, uh, the government, both uh, the DAR Council and the CAC, established what was called uh, FASA implementation teams to implement uh, various sections of FASA. And I was on the commercial item FASA implementation team. There you go. So I, I had. Uh, got in on this from the ground floor, and so I've had a little bit of an interest in this since that time, since I was uh, responsible for changing this diaper, so to speak, there's (laughs) far provisions on this thing. So let's, you know, the the policy uh, for clauses that are going to be included in contracts for commercial items are uh, to the maximum extent practicable uh, contracts for commercial items are only to include those clauses that implement provisions of law or regulation or law executive orders or that are determined to be consistent with customary commercial practice. So what we're doing this tells contracting officers the policy of the government is not to look at all the FAR clauses in Part 52 and include all the clauses in a contract for commercial items that you would normally include in a fixed price contract, but to be guided by this. Only select those clauses that are necessary to implement law or executive order 
or that are consistent with standard commercial practices. Now, the FAR has tried to make life easier on contracting officers in regard to this last part about these uh, consistent with customary commercial practice by using uh, FAR Clause uh, 52.212-4, which is a clause that has various paragraphs that cover uh, separate topics, such as assignment of claims, inspection, claims, uh, disputes, in inspection, etc. Uh, what this clause does is to uh, include terms and conditions that are generally consistent with customary commercial practices. So basically what the FAR has done is to say, all right, contracting officer, here are these clauses that are for, that are consistent with customary commercial practices so you don't have to rack your brain trying to figure out what that is. Okay. So what we have is where these where this clause is used, uh, some of these terms and conditions within 52.212-4 can be tailored. It, that is negotiated between the contractor and the government. The government, nothing in the FAR gives the government the unilateral right to make a change in the in these clauses and force the contractor to take the, these clauses. Uh, of course, you know, on the contractor side, they can always walk away from the deal if they don't like the clauses, and the government won't uh, change its mind and it come around to a reasonable insanity. Uh, so some of the clauses that are in, or paragraphs in 5212-4 can be tailored. However, some of the paragraphs in there implement statutes. So the statutory paragraphs cannot be tailored, but it's the paragraphs that do not implement statutes that can be tailored. And one of these, uh, from contractors' perspectives, one of the most significant changes, or not changes, but one of the most significant paragraphs in the 212-4 is the changes clause. Contractors are used to having in contracts for non-commercial items where the government has the unilateral right to order changes in certain parts of the contract, such as specifications or description of services to be provided. And the contractor is bound to comply with those orders those changes that the government is allowed to make within the general scope of the contract right okay. subject to repricing for the Re change. equitable adjustment yes right uh, if the order is outside the scope the contractor doesn't have to comply but they generally do really do because they're going to get paid for it okay under the uh, 212-4 the changes paragraph there paragraph C, that paragraph does not give the government a unilateral right to make a change in the contract. All changes to the contract have to be negotiated and mutually agreed to between the contractor and the government. 
Is we, that like a constructive change? Well, that raises an interesting point there. Uh, under the standard change, changes clauses, you know, various changes clauses, uh, there is a concept, it's a well-defined concept of a constructive change where the government does something prior to award or after award that has an impact on the contractor. Uh, generally, you know, for example, if a contract contains defective specifications, uh, that's a pre-award act on the part of the government, but that can constitute a constructive change. Uh, so con the concept of a constructive change came into being because the government could order changes. So they had the idea that the, the law considers done that which is required to be done. So that as a legal fiction, the boards and courts came up with the idea of a constructive change that, well, the government should have ordered this or required it. So the contractor is entitled to an equitable adjustment under the changes clause. That concept is not clear under the changes paragraph as currently written in 52.212-4. In my personal view, I think the concept of a constructive change does apply to contracts for commercial items. Let me give you an example. We talked about defective specs being a form of constructive change. We had a client that was responding to an RFP for uh, commercial items. Part of the work that the contractor was going to be doing under this contract was to attend certain meetings with the government. Uh, a schedule of meetings was not described in the RFP. The contractor at or in the Q&A session uh, for the RFP, contractors asked about all right, how many meetings and how frequent, and the government said to be determined. When the contractor submitted its final uh, proposal revision, it identified its assumptions, pricing assumptions in there, and one of the pricing assumptions the contractor specifically identified to the government was that these meetings that were being described in the RFP would be held once a month. The contracting officer bounced this up to the program office and said, is this a valid assumption? The program office said yes. And so that was the basis upon which the contractor had submitted its pricing. This was a follow-on contract that the, where the predecessor was, contract was held by a different contractor. Under the predecessor contract, these meetings that were being described were being held weekly. And, the, of course, the government knew they were being held weekly, did not tell the contractor that the meetings were weekly instead of monthly, as the contractor had told the government. Once the contract was awarded, the government was requiring the contractor to attend weekly meetings. So its cost, this is a firm fixed-price contract, the cost of attending these meetings went up 400%. Makes sense. So, so in this case, we, I think, and we, it, 
the contract was later terminated, and we did file a claim for uh, constructive change. And in settlement negotiations, we basically got the constructive change amount that we were requesting because of those meetings. So I, I think the concept of constructive change still applies. Okay. So that deals with the first thing, those clauses that are determined to be consistent with customary commercial practice. For contracts that are, or contract clauses that, that implement uh, provisions of law or executive order, we have FAR 52.212-5, where the contracting officer is to select from a list of clauses that all implement executive orders or statutes and determine which one are, is a, which ones are applicable to the particular acquisition. So if, if a clause is not checked off in 212-5, then contractor doesn't have to comply with that clause. It's only the checked clauses in 212-5 that the contractor complies with. But knowing the propensity of contracting officers to, uh, to check a lot of boxes, we often find a lot of clauses included that probably don't belong there. Right. So if that happens, the contractor has, should push back on the contracting officer and say, wait a minute, these clauses don't belong, this, or, this is not the type of contract to which this particular clause is applicable. Uh, for example, certain clauses have monetary thresholds. And the, the contract at issue may be below the monetary threshold. So that one's pretty easy to fight, but to push back on. Right. And some other clauses may have to do with uh, the length of time, you know, like the contractor business, code of business ethics clause. The contract may not have a period of performance of 120 days. It might be a 90-day contract. So you have to look at various things and determine whether it's something you push back on. We recently had an example where uh, the contracting officer included the wrong version of 52.12-5 in the contract. And there were clauses in, uh, because of President Trump's regulatory reform, and particularly doing away with a lot of President Obama's uh, executive orders on service contracts, a lot of the FAR clauses have been deleted that were in, included as a result of uh, President Obama's executive orders. Well, this particular version of 212-5 had some of those clauses in it, where the clauses had been you know, no longer applicable at the time the contract was awarded. So this was another issue that we had to go back to the contractor, not that you uh, the contracting officers, not that you've checked the wrong box. You put the wrong clause in altogether. you got to put a new clause in that has the correct clauses implementing statutes and regulations or executive orders. So these are things that uh, contractors have to be aware of and looking for when they're reviewing solicitations of uh, that relate to contracts for commercial items. 
So going beyond that, we get down to this issue, as we've said, you know, that's the government's policy is only to include contracts or contract clauses that implement law, executive order, or are consistent with customary commercial practices. However, you know, agencies do have the authority and the right to add additional clauses necessary to carry out the purpose of the contract. You know, for example, option clauses. Uh, if you have an IDIQ, commercial item contract, and ordering clause, those are no-brainers. Those make sense. Yeah, these are no-brainers. But where we're seeing more and more frequently, agencies will include uh, 52.212-4 and at the same time include uh, FAR clauses that would apply to a firm fixed price contract for supplies for changes, inspection, standard, you know, the regular uh, termination for convenience of the government, default clause, uh, all you know, these clauses that are basically superseded by paragraphs in 212-4. So if generally my recommendation would be if you see an RFP that has these extraneous clauses that are duplicative of paragraphs in paragraph uh, 52.212-4, you've got to push back on the uh, agency to get those clauses uh, eliminated from the contract. Otherwise, you wind up creating inherent internal conflicts between clauses. Just as we discussed earlier about the changes clause, where the standard changes clause gives the government a unilateral right to issue changes in specifications. Uh, paragraph C under 212-4 says only uh, changes can only be made by mutual agreement of the parties. So you can't have both in there without having an inherent conflict between the clauses of the contract. And under standard rules of contract interpretation, you ha come up with a problem. Well, wait a minute. One of the standard rules of interpretation of a contract is that all terms of the contract are to be given a, a reasonable meaning so that no part of a contract is read out. So this concept of self-deleting clauses really doesn't apply. And by having those kind of built-in conflicts, it's just so much likelier that there could be later disputes which lead to uh, uh, legal fees and, and, uh, and, and just added costs for the contractor. Right. A lot of Tums and Maylocks and yeah. <laughs> everything else for uh, acid indigestion and adjective, maybe some art pills. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So uh, that's, you know, these are some of the concerns that we have in regard to these contracts for commercial items. And uh, another uh, clause that I see that I have heartburn over, and I don't think it's consistent with standard commercial practices or necessary to carry out the object of the contract, is this subcontracts clause, 52.244-2. Uh, Generally, 
uh, in the commercial marketplace, a customer, a buyer, doesn't have the right to tell a seller who to subcontract to. I would think generally that's right. Yeah, so when you're trying to, you're talking about getting sub uh, clauses or getting consent to subcontract, uh, that just doesn't make sense to me. And it generally is a worthless clause in a firm fixed price contract anyway for commercial items. And one thing else, we're talking about contracts for commercial items, we can't forget subcontracts. Uh, Flow-down clauses. FAR 52-244-6 list the only clauses that are required to be in subcontracts for commercial items. Uh, The prime can include obviously can include other clauses that are necessary to carry out the contract, such as, again, if you have an IDIQ subcontract, an ordering clause, or an option clause. (coughs) Excuse me. But if you have a prime contract that's not for commercial items, how many times do we see prime contractors just pick up all the clauses that are in the prime contract and put them in the subcontract? All the time. Yeah, so... If you are a subcontract and contractor and you're providing commercial items, look at 52-244-6 and look at the only clauses that are required to be in your subcontract. And then you can fight back against the prime about including the allowable cost and payment clause and cash clauses and everything else in the subcontract. Things that just don't fit. Things that just don't fit. That's right. I don't care. You may be one of the ugly sisters and not sent, don't get Cinderella's glass slipper. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, John, thanks as always. Uh, it, it, uh, it reinforces once again to read everything that's coming your way and uh, don't think that that, there, that it shouldn't be pushed back on occasionally when things that just don't belong are, are there. Right. And r- there is an old rule about contracting. It, it, you always say it, you know, RTFC. <laughs> Read the full contract. The full contract, exactly. <laughs> John, thanks very much. And uh, we will look forward to, uh, to having you back on, on a future podcast. My pleasure.